All roads lead to Soderbergh. Yeah. This <laughs> podcast. If you have any cans to open, do it now. The cans are open. And we are gathered here today to talk about Moneyball, a movie starring Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill, Philip Seymour Hoffman, directed by Bennett Miller and written by Steve Galligan and Aaron Sorkin. So, Don, John, are both of you baseball fans at all? Yes. Yes? Former. Former. I love the game, but I shouldn't say that. I love the game. Um, I am not up on the last 21 or 22 years of uh, teams and players and so forth. But pre, let's say, 99, 2000 and before, I'm good. Do you have a team? Yeah, it used to be the Padres. I don't know. You can only be let down so many times. So are you currently teamless? I I don't know. Team affiliation really scares me. It's not a... Really? Yeah. It's kind of weird group behavior. It's it's okay to be a fan. Uh, I don't know if it is. I like in, I like I'm more into individual sports at this point, like okay. rooting for an individual person rather than a group of people who designate an alpha. But in any case, I used to play baseball and I used to be obsessed with baseball. I'm still currently a fan of the game. Just fan don't of the have game, a team. Don't have a team. All right. And Don? I am an intermittent fan. I'll jump in on intermittent seasons when i'm feeling it and your team of choice yankees all the way ah okay and because we're here to talk about money i'm gonna tell you your team number two in the salary Mm -hmm. number two you want to take a guess at how much they spent they spent on salary for 2021 47 million dollars more 79 million dollars more 150 million dollars more 270 million dollars you're closer 205 million point one Jesus. For one year. For one year for salaries. Total salaries for the team. We're talking just players on the field here. Is what we're doesn't talking. include the bench. Uh, well, I mean, we're talking players. Oh, all players. Okay. All, all okay. players. Yeah, we okay. aren't talking front office right, and right, all right, that. Right. We're talking just players. North of $200 million for the Yankees. How many players do they have this year? <laughs> well, it's what they pay for each one. This is why true Yankees fans can barely afford the fucking tickets anymore. Yeah. Well, isn't that the whole thing? I was really mystified when they built the new stadium. I mean, I know they need to upgrade and everything, but I was was there like a massive revolt in the Bronx and so forth when they said, like, all right, you know what? Old Yankee Stadium? Nah, we're going to build a new one. That was like, what, 15 years ago? Yeah, something like that. Well, pieces of concrete were falling off. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't lend charm to the structure character though not no no okay well i know it had to be replaced i wasn't keeping track of the storyline in a really uh detailed way i i do know that it seems to be some kind of cornerstone to the attempts to gentrify the bronx which i don't think people from the bronx really appreciate just the investors who want to be there who want to pretend to respect what they like to call grittiness of the neighborhood. The urban neighbor- grit. Yeah, the urban grit that the neighborhoods that we all grow up in that they would have never stepped into. Well, I because this is why I'm asking. I remember, so Tony Gwynn was my hero growing up. 
and he's one of the most was one of the most respected players in baseball just as a kind man mm-hmm. and a very good player and i remember when he went to yankee stadium for the world series he would talk about the old yankee stadium they would throw batteries at him. They knew everything about his mother, his his whole mm-hmm. family, and so I'm just wondering if in because I haven't paid any it's attention. It's rough. No, but I'm, yeah. I mean, in the yeah. new Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. does that carry over, or did that corporate mentality uh. kind of like because sti- you know, like a game? I've been down to Petco Park, and so like a game ain't what it what it wants. I mean, you can't fight, you can't you can't throw shit you can't yeah i mean pe- yeah. people are There's very no rabble rousing it's very civilized you know and it's and i and I, I attribute a lot of that to the corporate crowd i remember watching a no hitter one time and i was with my grandfather and we both know what when someone's throwing a no hitter first of all no one on the team talks to the fucking pitcher mm-hmm. pitcher sits in the corner and everyone minds their own fucking business these two yahoos corporate yahoos behind us we're sitting there silent padres have they at that point had never thrown a no-hitter and these motherfuckers in the seventh inning go oh man he's throwing a no-hitter and my grandfather turns around and goes what are you and like just gave him the third degree about it because next thing you know there goes fucking hit there you go there goes the no-hitter in any case Mm -hmm. i was just wondering if that phenomenon has like carried over into the new Yankee Stadium. Can you still throw batteries at people? And probably, I haven't been to a game there. I'll I'll have to ask what's happening. I mean, there's still enough genuine fans because that was hostile. Down the money, hostile territory. You enter Yankee Stadium, it's like entering a war zone. Yeah. Oh no, I remember during the World Series, and there were people from San Diego on the news crying. Because they were afraid of the people who were yelling oh, yeah, at them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but like yelling, I mean, that's just we, that's just your day. Yeah. yeah, there were people who went from San Diego to the Bronx to go to the World Series in the first couple games. Yeah. And then they stayed in their yeah. hotels. Because they would walk to the ballpark and Yankees fans are talking shit to them. Yeah. Which, that's, I mean, it was a really rough neighborhood in, at that time. But talking shit to the other team is part of what you do. Of course that's it is. Of course it and, is. And they'd yeah. be so afraid they stayed in their hotel room to watch the game. Yeah, and it's just it's. Uh, I think what happens in what you're talking about is once you make that change to take down a ballpark and chase the money mm-hmm. and go for the sky boxes. Mm-hmm. I think once you put sushi in a ballpark, you you really reach a point where you've sanitized the whole experience. Because we were in Chicago recently and took a tour of Wrigley Field, and Wrigley Field. It is the original mm-hmm. because when I was growing up in Illinois, I used to go watch games at the old Comiskey Park long before they tore that down and built the new Comiskey Park. So there's a replacement there too. But with Wrigley Field, they're adding on. So they're adding on the big screens, which, but if you remember back to the 80s when the Cubs hit the postseason, for the first time in a really, really long time, uh, yeah. well, now you had television involved. And those games are played at night because that's when they can make the most money on the advertising. So lights had to go into Wrigley Field for the first time. That was blasphemy. There there were petitions in Chicago against it. There's people still upset that there's night games at Wrigley Field. Wow. That's, and, that's the thing I think about baseball fans is they hold a grudge yeah. like mm-hmm. nobody 
I mean, there are still people in Brooklyn who hate the Dodgers <laughs> because they left Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, it is no joke. And that gets handed down to other generations, yeah. too. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you saw the Brooklyn Dodgers play. My grandfather's upset about it. So I'm upset about it. Yeah. And I'm not talking about the new gentrified areas of Brooklyn. But like, old Brooklynites, they hold on to that grudge. Like They nurse that grudge. Yeah. So when we went on a tour of Wrigley Field, at the bleachers, at the wall, you have this net that's attached to the wall. And everyone thinks it's to catch balls. Oh, yeah. No. What it's for... And this gets to your your thing about things done in older parks versus new parks. It is back in the 70s, they used to have bum races where two guys would start on top of the wall at opposite ends after drinking quite a bit of beer throughout the innings. And there would be a woman holding a flag at the center of center field on top of the wall. And the two drunk bleacher bums would run from opposite sides... <laughs> And the first one to reach the woman on top of the wall would win. Well, that net was put in to catch people from falling off the wall. It wasn't to catch debris coming out of the bleachers, like cups and stuff. Well, I used to watch... You told me this story a long time ago. I'm blanking... um, Harry Carey. Harry Carey. I used to watch every afternoon the Cubs games and Harry Carey. And I remember you said that there was a point... Right? Wouldn't they bring everyone? He would do the broadcast from left field or something, and they'd bring him beers. There were some games he would broadcast sitting in the bleachers the entire game, and he'd be so drunk by the middle of it that the game, the the announcing got quite interesting. Everyone right? wanted to buy Harry a beer. Right? Everyone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's I think that's what I mean by the my association with baseball is so organic. Like it, it just, I mean, I, there are a lot of corporate structures in place, even in the eighties and so forth, but mm-hmm. it felt like you could do anything at a baseball game yeah. and get away with it. Like it was a, a zone where the law did not apply for three or four hours unless you did something outrageous. Yeah. But I mean, you know, yeah, so yeah. But, well, uh, and it was such a culture too. Yeah. And I think that's changed with the corporatization that you're talking about. Cause I mean, when I was growing up, there wasn't an option to, <laughs> to not be a Yankee. You mean you couldn't fan. be a Mets yeah. fan in oh, the Bronx? Oh, fuck no. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I would tell these stories. I had family members, and I didn't really keep up on the stats. I would watch the games. But they're like, well, you know, Reggie Jackson, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, no, I didn't. You don't know that? Yeah. Don't you know Reggie Jackson did blah, blah, blah? The hush that could fall over a room because you did not know these things. The shame that would be heaped upon you. And, and, you know, I'm I'm a Cubs fan who... (laughs) Hey, we had a good run there. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) I recently came across someone's Facebook profile where they're from Illinois and they list who they follow and they listed the Cubs and the Sox. What? And, and it was just an innate reaction from me. Fucking pick a side. Yeah. Your north side or south you, side, one or the other. You can't like both teams. No, you can't like no. both of those teams. No. no. One of the editorial cartoonists I follow threw that out there. Can you be a fan of both teams in your city? So he asked, he said, if you're a Yankees fan, can you be a Mets fan? Absolutely not. Nope. It is against the laws of nature. You cannot do that. Can't people, do it. People rung in on the White Sox and the Cubs. And yeah, you think 
That's not a thing. So yeah, I think it just does not happen. I think once the focus turns to chasing the money, you do lose an element of baseball in there. Yeah. And uh, I think it's interesting that you started out with that because we're going to talk about how money influences baseball to the degree of how do you plan for that and how do you leverage it between teams because Cubs, the, the Cubs in 2021, while the Yankees were $205 million for, a play, for player salaries, the Cubs were 144. Hmm. And if we come down, we take a look here. The league average for player salaries is 127.7 million dollars, and the Oakland Athletics, the team we're going to talk about today, 90 million dollars, almost 91. But that's what they're working with in comparison to Don's Yankees. Well, I remember in these discussions a long time ago about salary caps and so forth. The advantage for New York was always that New York City was that they had those major television markets Mm -hmm. and. and Mm -hmm. You don't get that kind of viewership, maybe except for, well, we can say Boston, but that's a, Mm -hmm. yeah, but I mean, oh yeah, that kind of viewership and revenue from, like, you don't get it, I mean, maybe, eh, I was going to say San Francisco, maybe, but it's not the same level of fervor and intensity, and what what is it, Channel... The CBS station out in there New, in New York, the the channel that carries it, it's a, there's a cable company in the, the oh uh, that carries all the N- all N- the Yankees games. NY oh um, I can't think of it anyway. But that's like that equivalent, like where you have that kind of revenue coming in. I just and I just remember this when this with the salary cap discussions, like we need to have salary caps in baseball because yeah. it's, it's completely unfair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Cubs benefited from WGN being broadcast on cable nationwide, oh, yeah. so the Cubs wound up becoming America's team. More so than the Braves on TBS did. Well, more so than the Yankees. Yeah. So Moneyball is the true story about the manager of the Oakland A's, Billy Bean, and how he used data to leverage the disparity in salary budgets of competing major league teams. In 2002, the use of this data took the Oakland A's into the postseason. Moneyball gets a 7.6 out of 10 from IMDb, a 94% rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and an 87% rating from Movie Critic. And what I'd like to find out now from both of you is, what did you like about the film? Dawn, what did you like about Moneyball? I liked the little things. I liked. I always liked the Sorkin-esque things. In, in any of his work. But I, I liked the small moments. I loved the moment where he sees this executive assistant who is so much more and he just keeps pummeling him with the same question over and over again. Who are you? I'm the assistant. Who are you? I, I, I assist him. Who are you? And he's trying to figure out what his genuine role is. Yeah. And I liked at the very end, and I won't give anything away, but there's this moment where Billy Bean, if you know the story that comes immediately after the end of the movie, he is hearing the song that his daughter loves, that his daughter recorded for him, mm-hmm. and he is hearing lyrics that do not exist, that are assessing his next life steps. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so smooth, you don't notice it unless yeah. you're really listening, but you can hear his assessment of the decisions he has just made coming back at him yeah. and how his decisions must be viewed by his daughter. 
I loved those little kind of moments. I think they were just so good and they just resonated. And, and you know what? Until you described it that way, because uh, it's been noted that that actual song came out two years after the events in the movie take place. But that young girl auditioned with that song. Oh. Which is why the director decided, you know what? I know it's anachronistic, but it, it hits the notes you just mentioned, Don. And she was so good at performing it. The director said, fuck it. We're going we're gonna to leave it in. She had such good presence. She did. And I just think watching the dynamics, just in general, in the different relationships that he was navigating, it was just excellent. His ex-wife and her new husband and his daughter and navigating conversations without them rising the way they could his quiet insistence on only giving the information he thinks someone is entitled to. Does this person need to be here? Yes. He doesn't offer explanation. I, mm-hmm. I just think it was very well crafted. And John, what did you like about the film? I, I want to pick up on the dynamics. I loved, I, I love Brad Pitt's performance and Jonah Hill's performance. The thing I like about the film so much is the thing that makes me hate the, process of what they went through in the sense that to me when you start to insert this level of kind of almost algorithmic mathematical influence over the Mm -hmm. way that you play it kills a lot of the sport to me but that i thought that's what made it a great film it showed two sides like that scene in the in the beginning where Billy Bean sitting there and they're going around the table and you got all these old guys going, ah, yeah, like he's, he's got good power. Yeah, he's a good slugger. And they're, and they're going through all these like old-fashioned instinctual ways of judging a player and a player's worth. Like that rings re- very true to me. Watching an algorithm take over yeah. is unsettling to me as a fan, but it made for a great film. It did. And what I really like is I always like when films bring inside baseball stuff that you as a viewer don't quite understand but to me it gives a deeper texture to the environment and the relationship they're talking about stuff that they know that you don't quite know Mm -hmm. and especially in the scouting Mm -hmm. meeting Mm -hmm. not a whole lot of explanation is going on about their reasoning and there's no reason for them to explain it because they all know it Mm -hmm. and you as a viewer are just dropped in the room and what you're picking up on is the engagement between each other Mm -hmm. and so you're seeing the culture of the scouts Mm -hmm. and all you need to know is not the players they're talking about you need to understand how they're approaching their job to understand what a threat sabermetrics is to them. And I always love that because what I what I usually do is I watch the film a couple times as I'm researching it. And I just watched it again last night after I got the script ready. And now knowing certain names that we're going to talk about, mm. they popped out in the movie more for me. Mm. For instance, Bill James, who's considered the father of sabermetrics, I only picked up on him being referenced once in the film. But now that I have it in my head and understand the context, I heard two additional references that I didn't even catch on because mm-hmm. I didn't have the context. One is in the first scouting meeting when, uh, no, I think it's the second or third one they show, uh, where one of them just says, kind of in between other talk, you're not buying into this Bill James bullshit, are you? 
And unless you're already tuned into that, you're not necessarily going to catch that line to understand the reactions taking place. I love that stuff that gives it a deeper texture and a deeper context. Well, I think that's one of those things that is a hallmark of Sorkin's work Mm -hmm. is that he assumes the intelligence of his audience and that you're going to pay enough attention when you catch something you don't know to Mm -hmm. see what else you might find out about it. I'm sorry. Did Sorkin direct this exclusively? No. Okay. Sorkin was not the director on this. Oh, Sorkin wrote? He was brought in. We're going to talk about the whole production because it's really interesting. And that's we're going to have a deeper discussion towards the end about uh, which is going to go into why films aren't necessarily true and who the original director was who wanted this film to be absolutely true. So that's going to be a whole discussion when we talk about was any harm done. Was there anything you didn't like about the movie, John? No. About the film itself? Mm -hmm. No, I could watch it a hundred times in a row and I'd be be a happy man. Yeah. Uh, I have to add one thing I liked when he's stopping by to pick up his daughter and that awkward scene with his ex-wife played by Robin Wright. Her new husband is not credited, but do you know who that was? Spike Jones, <laughs> Really? Who was wonderfully awkward and talking about the cell phone. And, and that's the other thing in the interaction, because Brad Pitt says, her mother and I will talk about it. It's yeah. just awkward as all hell. Mm-hmm. Don, was there anything you didn't like about the movie? No. Well, I guess I'll find out if there's anything I don't like when you start to share what was accurate or inaccurate. But no, I loved it. And so, uh, since we talked about the film Moneyball as a movie, on a pure entertainment scale, what would you give the film between one and five stars, John? I'm going to give it a Spinal Tap 11. Spinal Tap 11? Pure entertainment? Pure Pure entertainment. Crank those fucking amplifiers, man. Sit back. It's just like, I don't have to think about anything when I watch this film. It's just pure, pure escapism. And Don? It's definitely one louder. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm right Touché. there with John. Touché. I'm right there with John. And yeah. I'll go with you there. I, I thought everything that was done in this film was great. The human interactions felt real. And uh, it felt grounded. It's a grounded movie. Then let's talk about the historical accuracy of what was presented in the film Moneyball. We're going to compare the overall story and some specific instances to determine if this is a biopic that mostly sucks. We're going to start with sabermetrics, what it is, what it isn't, and why do people get so angry about it? (laughs) And did sabermetrics really help the A's win? Oh, interesting. That's something we're going to have to talk about. Billy Bean, we're going to talk about real life versus the movie. Peter Brand, we're going to talk about the character played by Jonah Hill. And then lastly, we're going to wrap up with what's become a theme in our discussions, which is, did the filmmakers do no harm? We're we're fine with certain liberties taking place, but are you going to throw someone under the bus in order to make the story more engaging? So we'll talk about if any harm was done here. So let's start off with sabermetrics. What was in the movie? The use of data changed the game of baseball and allowed the Oakland A's to compete financially and reach the playoffs. But what really happened? And we're going to start off with the formal definition of sabermetrics, which is the use of statistical analysis to analyze baseball records and make determinations about player performance. And 
This has been happening as long as baseball has been a sport. Bill James is often credited as the father of sabermetrics, and he's referenced in the film. And he defines the term as the search for objective knowledge about baseball. Why is it called sabermetrics? What is that? How, and is it spelled like, sa- it, it's spelled an, like saber? It's an acronym. Oh, oh okay. okay. Yeah, it's an acronym. Uh, but the use of statistics in the game goes back much further. It started in 1858 with the creation of the box score by sports writer Henry Chadwick. The attempted use of sabermetrics research really kicked off in 1964 with the publication of Percentage Baseball by Earnshaw Cook. But the baseball community dismissed that book and the ideas it put forth. And then in the early 70s, Davey Johnson was playing for the Baltimore Orioles, and he was trying to convince his manager, Earl Weaver, that he should be batting second. In order to do this, he used an IBM 360 computer <laughs> to write a Fortran computer simulation. Fortran? Fortran. Wow. His attempt to <laughs> convince his manager was unsuccessful. Wow. That's some old school programming there. <laughs> Sabermetrics started to take hold when Bill James began publishing baseball abstracts in 1977. Where did he publish these ab- abstracts? Like in journals? Uh, or Sports Illustrated? Uh, he started his own publishing. Oh, he, he, would just, it was, he would just kind of publish it on his own. But wow. it was an annual compendium of baseball data. And every year, wow. the use of the data started to become widespread. So even though there were efforts at using data all throughout the history of baseball and then Davy Johnson in the 70s, yeah. it didn't catch until Bill James was publishing baseball abstracts in 1977. He must have been dedicated to it. Self-publishing? was not the easy process it is now where anyone can publish. Mm-hmm. Because as mentioned in the movie, he wasn't even in baseball. He was just a fan working at a packing plant Wow! when he started putting this data together. Now, in the meantime, Davey Johnson, who we mentioned from the Orioles, he went on to become the manager of uh, the minor league Tidewater Tide, where he wrote IBM Basic Programs and then managed the Mets in 1984, where he arranged for a team employee to write DBase2 applications <laughs> to compile and store advanced metrics on team statistics. So this is 84. So it's growing slowly. It's growing organically. And then in 1989, RetroSheet was founded and it computerized the box score, remember, since 1858, of every Major League Baseball game ever played to more accurately collect and compare statistics. So this is a movement that's growing. And this, this is what takes us to the Oakland A's. But it doesn't take us to where the movie starts. Because the Oakland A's started using sabermetrics under general manager Sandy Alderson when he used the principles to obtain relatively undervalued players in 1989. Remember, Moneyball takes place in 2002. Billy Bean took those ideas and continued to use him when he became the GM in 1997. So the movie's showing that this all started with Billy Bean. 
but it actually started under a previous general manager. Mm-hmm. Billy Bean then hired Paul De Podesta, and their work led to the success the team had in 2002. Hmm. Now, baseball, as we said, has always been a game of statistics, and each one of those statistics means something different. Sabermetricians believe some of those statistics are either overvalued or undervalued. For example, sabermetricians believe RBIs, runs batted in, is a meaningless statistic to gauge the uh, value of a player. Because what you're talking about are the number of runs a batter batted in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that player has no control over how many players are on base when they step up to bat. Yeah, this never made any sense to me. No. So why are we using that as a way to determine how effective a player is? In order for a player to have a lot of RBIs, he must consistently have runners on base when he is up to bat. And it's impossible for that hitter to control that. So therefore, RBIs do not accurately represent the value of a hitter. Sabermeticians are always looking at data and asking questions about how to apply that data to find the best players on their team. So what do sabermetricians value as metrics? The three most commonly used are OPS, VORP, and USER. OPS, O-P-S, stands for on-base plus slugging, and it is a sabermetric statistic calculated as the sum of a player's on-base percentage and slugging percentage. And some of these formulas you saw in the movie Some of them get really, really complicated. But basically what they're gauging is the ability of a player both to get on base and hit for power because those are the two most important offensive skills that are represented in this metric. VORP is value over replacement player. And this is an interesting one. So what this determines is how much a player contributes to his team in comparison to a hypothetical player that performs at a minimum level needed to hold a roster position on a major league team. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, we have user, UZR, which is ultimate zone rating. It's one of the most widely used publicly available defensive statistics. User puts a run value on defense, attempting to quantify how many runs a player saved or gave up through their fielding skills or lack thereof. And we should be clear, since we're talking about Moneyball, there is a difference between Moneyball and Sabermetrics. Sabermetrics is simply an attempt to objectively measure a player's effectiveness. Moneyball attempts to use Sabermetrics to quantify a player's monetary value within a set ideology. Mm. It uses Sabermetrics, but it's for a completely different purpose. And the reason it was being used by the A's in 2002 was to leverage those disparities in the payroll salaries. Because how are they going to compete against the New York Yankees, who can buy any player they want, when you're dealing with a payroll which is half of what they have? So how are you going to get players to compete within the same league? It's a disparity that was Salary cap. Now, there is opposition to the use of sabermetrics by baseball traditionalists who do not like the approach being applied to a subjective topic. This opposition is best encapsulated by Joe Henderson, who is the second best second baseman from Major League Baseball and an Emmy-winning sports analyst. 
And this is indicative of the traditionalists and their response to Moneyball. I want to read this passage from an interview from Joe Henderson. He says this about Moneyball. Why would I want to read the book? All I'm saying is I see a game every day. I watch baseball every day. I have a better understanding about why things happen than the computer because the computer only tells you what you put into it. I could make that computer say what I wanted it to say if I put the right things in there. The computer is only as good as what you put in it. How do you think we got Enron? <laughs> now, keep in that, That's a hell of a leap. It's a wild uh, little, little yeah. ride there. Now, keep in mind, Joe Henderson hasn't read Moneyball. Well, he said he doesn't want to read it. He has no interest in it because he knows the game. And this is where traditionalists come from. They feel the data is there to supplant what they know. See, I can I, I can't see his argument unless he's gonna read the fucking book. Unless he's gonna fit I mean I understand where he's coming from from a spirited point of view, but to proudly, you know, gallivant and display your ignorance and then say and use your ignorance as a justification for not doing something is patently absurd. I'm I'm not going to read the book. I don't need to. Therefore, I'm not going to use it. Yeah, and, uh, I've got my gut. I've got you know, and all that kind of. I get mm-hmm. it. I get that stuff. I understand that stuff totally. But come on, man, Enron. What do you? Yeah, I think no matter your discipline, if you're good, you're using subjective and yeah. objective information. They tell you different things. Mm-hmm. And if you want to use objective information to your benefit, you're not going to put into the computer what's going to get you Enron, in his words. You're going to put in the information you have that you believe is relevant, and you're going to see what results from it and determine some of your next steps based in part on that information. Do you think if this process were done uh, not on a computer, if it were done in an analog fashion, that there wouldn't be a reaction against it? Do you think that it might be a little bit of technophobia? I think technophobia always plays into any fears. But I think first and foremost, you have the fear of your knowledge being supplanted by something you don't quite understand. Mm -hmm. Right. But it seems like if this were being done longhand Mm -hmm. more people would be included in the process and it wouldn't be an outside computer analyst coming in and saying i've got a secret or i've got a trick that none of you can possibly understand because you haven't studied this stuff and so that provokes a natural like fuck you i i I have my baseball instincts i know who good players are i don't know it just seems like if if this wasn't a computer discussion it might be a different Mm-hmm. argument yeah i think the technology adds an extra layer to the fear okay but i think the base fear is still you're telling me what i already know and you're not agreeing with what i'm saying based on my knowledge and experience therefore you are a threat so the story we see in moneyball took place 20 years ago almost 20 years ago and at that time new york led the league in player salaries with a 130 million dollar budget that's the- obscene The A's were competing at number 28 out of 30 teams with a $39 million budget for player salaries. And what Sabermetrics allowed the A's to do was to get competitive players on the team. Now Sabermetrics is used across the MLB, and the playing field is almost as disparate as it was before. 
because, and I forget where I read it in my research, but someone said regarding the A's, if you have something that's working for you, don't share it. Because Moneyball worked for as long as the A's were using it and no one else was. But now that Sabermetrics is being used throughout the league, we're back to the playing ground is level and it comes down to the money. Because if everyone is looking for the players that can do that one thing that matters to get runs, then that means the teams with the most money can still buy the more expensive players who do that one thing to get runs. So the landscape is back to what it was. It's just a new tool is in the mix for everyone involved. Salary caps, salary caps, for the love of Christ. It's the same thing. The NFL has salary caps. There's a reason different teams are in the fucking playoffs every year. I think those are the sorts of practices you just cannot keep secret. I mean, general managers move from team to team. They're not going to discontinue using that. And then their management teams, their coaches, their scouts all learn this. I mean, it's it's going to disseminate it's going to disperse yeah and there's you can't no way keep it secret you can't put any kind of proprietary no, no yeah and there is a saber meeting that takes place <laughs> that's so corporate <laughs> a saber meeting that takes place ahead of spring training every year where all the analysts get together and they talk about what is it they're getting stats on and what are the new things they're going to get stats on because it's not as fixed as you might think. One of the discussions that took place at the beginning of 2021 was how are we going to track injured players? The information came off of the DL, but the DL doesn't tell you players who are playing hurt, mm-hmm. right? So now the analysts are looking for is that player limping on the way to first? And that's a piece of data that goes into the mix. Mm-hmm. So now they're they're tracking new things all the time. But what we need to talk about right now is what did Sabermetrics really do for the A's? Because Moneyball, the movie, is based on a book by Michael Lewis. And Michael Lewis isn't telling a story about the Oakland A's. He's supporting a premise about Sabermetrics. As a result, He left out information about what many in baseball consider an amazing starting roster for the A's that was brought onto the team through traditional scouting. Tim Hudson, Mark Mulder, Barry Zito, all of whom were in place on the team already. In fact, Zito was the Cy Young Award winner that year, and a fourth player, Miguel Tejada, was an American League MVP that year. guy's a fucking good, was a great player. None of these players are mentioned in the film. Actually, after I did my research and went back and watched it again, I did see they are mentioned on the film. There is a shot of a whiteboard right when we come to the first scout meeting, and their names are in the middle of the baseball diamond on the whiteboard. That is the only reference Mm -hmm. they get. All of these players were high draft picks, and the A's could afford them because the MLB has a salary cap on what young players can make. What does that mean, a young player? Does that mean a rookie for the first X number of years? What does that mean specifically? I don't know what the definition is on the salary cap, but I could look that up. But that is one of the things that people say undermines the 
what people profess sabermetrics can do. Because if these players were on the team and the A's had the success, it's not solely sabermetrics that brought the team into the playoffs. The other argument is there hasn't been a team in baseball who has won the World Series using sabermetrics. That's what I was going to ask also. Is it, has it been repeated or was, that, was it a one-off? In terms of this this kind of you know revolutionary success that we see with the A's, could that has that formula been effectively repeated? Because that would put it then in scientific objectivity. I don't know if anyone's been able to parse that out well enough because both sides are looking at information that they can't quite make the connection mm. to. On the traditionalist side, you have. Aha, uh -huh. and we'll look at a couple examples here. Sabermetrics doesn't work. For instance, in the movie, it shows the Oakland A's losing to the Minnesota Twins. It's their loss to the Twins that gets them kicked out of the playoffs. The movie and the book do not mention that the Twins had a salary budget just $220,000 more than the A's in 2002. And like the A's, they were able to build their roster with young, cheap players who were good draft picks. So if the Minnesota Twins continued on in the playoffs and kicked the Oakland A's out without using sabermetrics, is that an argument for traditional scouting? Because sabermetrics apparently didn't keep allow the A's to I continue. I just have to see more examples. That's the thing. That's yeah. that's how the arguments take place on this. Huh. Well, and and there's this assumption that it is a didactic argument that it's an either or mm -hmm. argument. And this goes back to the idea of you need subjective and objective information to do anything effectively for any length of time, because anything can be a one-off and you can attribute it to X, Y, or Z, but you, you need longitudinal information and you need to take all of it into consideration and figure out how you do that. It wasn't just the Oakland A's playoff run that caused sabermetrics to catch like wildfire in the Major League Baseball. It was really the 20-game winning streak mm. they had in that season. Sabermetrics is given the credit, but can one really discount traditional scouting methods? The other teams in the league, New York Bets, Yankees, Padres, Cardinals, Red Sox, the Nationals, the Diamondbacks, the Cleveland team, Toronto Blue Jays, they all hired full-time sabermetric analysts after that season. Sabermetrics is given a great importance in the film. And it seems to put forward the notion that the A's hadn't won in a while. The, the A's went into the postseason in 2000 and 2001, and in both years, they lost to the Yankees. So it's not like sabermetrics made a huge turn for them. And plus, the book and the movie don't mention that in 2000, Jeremy Giambi, who the movie shows being brought on through the use of sabermetrics in 2002, mm -hmm. was the MVP in 2000 on the Oakland A's. He had been with the team for a few years by the time the events in the movie take place. Hmm. Does sabermetrics take into account there are those who perform well in the regular season and then the, the great ones come through in the postseason? Like you think of like the Yankees, Mariano Rivera... Those who can come through in a clutch moment where everything is on the line, because a lot of players crumble under that pressure. I, I don't think you can quantify a player's response to pressure using data. However, 
Sabermetrics is only a tool that is used in the mix. The movie presents a very either-or argument, yeah, yeah, sure. and so does the book, that it, it's all sabermetrics right. or all scouting. But Paul De Podesta, who we'll talk about in a little bit here, says you have to have the scouts in the mix because you don't know which conditions those numbers were earned. You may have two players that have the same numbers, but the ballpark, the pressure they were under, mm -hmm. what were the conditions in which they achieved those numbers, that's what you need the scouts to fill in in order to have a complete picture. I think you could potentially track what pressure does to someone. I mean, you can track almost anything if you figure out just how to do it. I mean, if you have someone who always... I don't know, say pitches five innings clean and can do no hitters, right? But then you've put him in three times where the outcome of the game is dependent on whether or not he can pitch a no hitter inning and he always tanks, right? Mm -hmm. Or he always stands up. You can start to see a pattern and then you can determine how you can assess someone's performance under pressure and when you put them in. And I think it would be much more longitudinal. I don't think it would be as easy. And part of that comes down to the scouts and, and your subjective. When you start to see it, you say, oh, I need to pull this person, yeah. right? And there, you, I, I'm sure this still happens, but around the midseason trade deadline, if a team looks like they're in contention, they would trade for either a utility player or a player who was a very good pinch hitter and had a just mm. an, ex, an insane, you know, whether it was their RBIs, whether it was their batting average, on-base percentage, just insane numbers under this, under these extreme postseason conditions. And they didn't play like all; they were average players during the season. I just that that's just I've always thought that's like you, you give the ball to this person, or mm -hmm. you make sure this person's in play. And I don't know; that seems to be another argument for scouting, but. I would just love to see those metrics. Who plays well, like when it matters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't think there can't there should. Well, I mean, I don't think there should be an either or discussion when yeah. it comes to scouting and saber yeah. metrics. Yeah, I think it should be a discussion about the use of the tools. But you know, change is a dark, scary ride, yeah. and it causes those types of reactions. Yeah. In baseball, people have a hard time pointing to a team that has won the series using sabermetrics huh. because that's the ultimate goal is yeah. to win the series. Although I don't know, could an argument be we're we're recording this just a few days after the world series has ended between the Atlanta team and the Houston Astros. Do you know what the disparity between their player salaries was? I don't even know who's playing on their teams. Houston Astros we're number four for 2021 salaries mm -hmm. with $194.5 million. Mm -hmm. Atlanta, who took the series, is number 11 with hundred, almost $153 million. That's still a high payroll. Still a high payroll, but there's quite a disparity between the two teams. You have a number four ranked team for payroll being beaten the series by a number 11 ranked team who went in as the underdog is there a potential to point to that and say through the use of Moneyball, Atlanta could do that? I think we need to dig deeper in the data for that. But at the moment, there's no team that's been identified as 
using sabermetrics to give them an advantage in winning the series. And again, I think the reason why is because now the landscape has flattened. Hmm. Money is still the overriding winner throughout all of it. But they can still be using Saber metrics. I mean, we don't know what Atlanta's magic mm-hmm. sauce was this year. That's yeah. A lot of what it comes down to is the magic sauce. It's yeah. probably a combination of all these subjective and objective pieces of information. Yeah. You know, there may have been more players on the team who had a good-looking girlfriend. Can I tell you how much I fucking hate that shit? That is so fucking sexist and so fucking stupid. And it always comes from these assholes. These knuckle-dragging assholes who look like they've barely showered in the last week, let alone lifted a weight, because the way women look seems to matter to them. And they, I mean, it's it's so fucking infuriating. Well, you know, I I think that just makes a good argument for approaching baseball objectively with data. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's go ahead and talk about Billy Bean, because what was in the movie was that Billy Bean was the manager of the Oakland A's in 2002. With the use of sabermetrics, he and Peter Brand changed the way baseball teams are staffed and changed the game of baseball forever. So what really happened? Billy Bean was the manager of the Oakland A's for four years before the use of data was used to create a roster. Bean was working with a $39 million salary for players, while the New York Yankees were working with a $130 million salary. This situation created a disparity in talent that a franchise could recruit to play for a team. In many instances, a player would start with the A's, and this is said in the movie, develop their skills and move on to more money with another team, which basically left the A's being a farm team. They'd bring the talent in, they'd train the talent up, and then the talent would always go somewhere else. It's like mm-hmm. a third of the teams in the in Major League Baseball. Yeah, yeah they're de facto farm teams. Yep. Always those who are below the league average on payroll. Uh, we talked about with Sabermetrics how that worked out or didn't based on one's point of view. So let's talk about Billy Bean's personal life that was shown in the film. Okay. Because the film shows Billy in 2002 maintaining a relationship with his wife, Sharon, due to the shared custody of their daughter. Sharon is played by Robin Wright, and in real life her name was Kathy, and his daughter's real name is Casey. But in 2002, Billy was married to his second wife, Tara. And there were scenes shot with Catherine Morris as Tara. And Catherine Morris is an actress on the show Cold Case, but her scenes wound up on the cutting room floor. But you may notice in the film that Billy wears a wedding ring, Mm -hmm. which I think without Tara in the film makes it look like he's pining Mm -hmm. for his previous wife this whole time. That was very much the impression I got. Over his eight years as GM for the Oakland A's, Bean took the team to the championships five times. And today he is still with the A's organization in the role of executive vice president of baseball operations, and he's a minority owner of the team. By the way, the the film showed Bean turning down the job at the Red Sox. In reality, he took the job, and then he turned it down 12 hours later, making him the manager of the Red Sox with the least tenure. (laughs) But for the most part, the film got right what he did as manager and what he did with the team, just fudged a little bit on the timelines and whether or not he really brought sabermetrics in. Let's go ahead and talk about Peter Brand. In the film, Peter Brand (laughs) 
is a Yale graduate who Billy Bean finds working for the Cleveland Indians. He steals him away to apply statistics to building the 2002 Oakland A's roster. Well, let's start off by saying Peter Brand is not a person. He is a character created by Aaron Sorkin because the real person did not want their name used in the film. Mm. That person, oh, but there is a real person. There is a real person, and that person's name is Paul D. Podesta. Paul D. Podesta was a consultant on the film. He worked with Jonah Hill in developing the character. But for him, he said, I already got lots of attention from the book. I didn't feel like going through it again for the movie. So he said, I'll help you guys out, but I don't want my name used in the film. So was he actually an executive assistant at the time whose brain they were using in other ways? He was a graduate of Harvard where he played baseball and football. So if you're thinking the real life person is this doughy kind of figure, that wasn't him. He was fit and trim. His first job for baseball was with the Cleveland Indians in 1996. And he spent three years there, two years as an advanced scout, one year as a special assistant to general manager Peter Hart. One thing that has always bothered me in the movie is that Peter Brand was bought from the Cleveland Indians by the Oakland A's. And the question for me has always been in the film, how did this happen? Because the Cleveland organization obviously valued him, and they're using this tool, so why would they let him go in the first place? And the Oakland A's didn't quite have the budget to lure him away. So the question to me in the movie has been, how did they achieve this? And the answer is, they didn't. Paul D. Podesta joined the Oakland A's in 1999 as an assistant manager to Billy Bean. So the whole, who are you? Never happened. I know Don really wanted that to be the case. (laughs) The whole deep throat. No, Paul D. Podesta just changed teams, got a better paying job ah that makes me so sad and that's how he came to the oakland that's, days oh, i mean good for him in real life but that sucks yeah oh. that sucks dramatically oh yeah. he he went on to do more in 2004 the los angeles dodgers tried to get billy bean to leave oakland he declined so the dodgers hired de podesta as the general manager <laughs> oh shit at 31 years old he became the fifth youngest gm in major league baseball history only the fifth youngest? Only the fifth youngest. There were four people younger than 31. Throughout the history of baseball, yes. Who were GMs? Yes. Wow. He also went on to work with the San Diego Padres and the New York Mets before shifting to football when he was hired by the Cleveland Browns as their chief strategy officer in 2016, a position he still holds today. Hmm. So sorry, Don. Sorry that whole Cleveland thing didn't happen although i do love the scene of billy bean searching the deaths he looks like a shark swimming back and <laughs> mm-hmm. forth as he's searching for this guy it's, yes it's a great visual but well nah. and i think it's a good way to put forth to the audience about how billy bean might be going about yeah his mm-hmm. job yeah and, and i wonder if that the sense that it's giving is is accurate makes him seem like a real maverick you know yeah he's out there bucking the system hey who are you hey come over here you know yeah and then interestingly to me now that we're talking about this is he's only watching him so he essentially scouted right his sabermetrics guy (laughs) (laughs) he did yes so this is like three layers of meta on yeah 
Because even if he hired him legit three years later, you know, just as a new employee and not poaching him, he still essentially went off of scouting him. It was an instinct. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about if any harm was done. We know from taking a look at enough biopics that some changes will be made for the purpose of storytelling. Sometimes that means that someone is turned into a villain. And the response to this typically is, it's only a movie. Or no one believes Hollywood. (laughs) But these changes can reach a large audience and can impact people's lives. So what was in the movie? Billy Bean and Greedy Fusion are at odds about using data. And Fusion is fired after dropping the F-bomb on Bean. Art Howe is in a constant battle against Billy Bean about the changes being made to the roster. So what happened in reality? Greedy Fusion was a head scout for the Oakland A's from 1995 to 2001. As a scout, the changes being made by Bean were a threat to the way the players had always been selected for the team. Fusion left the A's in 2001 to take the job of assistant GM for the Texas Rangers. He left for a higher paying job. Did he take sabermetrics with him? That's a good question. I should take a look at that. That is a great question. But he wasn't fired for dropping the F-bomb on Billy Bean. I wouldn't think so. That just felt like, uh, what do they call it, when it's just something to move the story along? Create conflict? Well, that, but I'm looking for a different word. Anyway. McGuffin? But, no. What's it, what am I thinking of now? It's not that. Yeah, I can't. Anyway. Um, but it. Who, who the hell in baseball gets fired for dropping an F-bomb? Give me a break. Well, what's the thing in Bull Durham? Call me a cocksucker. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're a cocksucker. You're out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of that Jerry Maguire. You said fuck. <laughs> 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 Fucking do his clothes, Ray. (laughs) (laughs) So get this. So Gary Fusion didn't know about that scene with his character dropping the Mm F-bomb until he and his wife saw the movie at the premiere in Oakland. Oh, fun for him. His major regret about that was he couldn't take his grandson to see the film now. (sighs) And that's not okay. Showing someone getting fired and over something petty like that... Mm Uh, yeah, and you know, Sorkin tends to do these kinds of things, and yep. it always undermines my appreciation for his skill and his adroit abilities in, in putting forth the story, because it seems little, but it's not. That's someone's reputation. Yeah. In 2005, Fusion went on to be a special assistant to GM Kevin Towers in his hometown of San Diego. He was born and raised in Kearney Mesa. He returned to the A's in 2010 as a special assistant to Billy Bean. Now, we talked about some of the players on the team, and the movie mostly gets correct what happened, but there were certain liberties taking place regarding the players. Jeremy Giambi had been with the A's for a few years by 2002. Bean did not visit Hattiesburg's home on Christmas because all of the conversations (laughs) were taking place by phone. And David Justice didn't have any issues with paying a dollar for a soda. That brings us to Art Howe. Howe is shown as being difficult, belligerent, and fighting being on the changes brought to the team. And it all starts off with him wanting to talk about his contract extension in the hallway. Howe 
has been much more vocal about how he was portrayed Mm -hmm. than a lot of people who have been the subjects in biopics. Wow. He has been in media, in print, and radio, giving his thoughts on the entire thing. And in reality, he says, he started as a manager in 96. He had another year on his contract through 2003. House states that his manager always negotiated the contracts And he certainly wouldn't have approached Billy Bean in the hallway to have that discussion. Mm. In an interview with the Houston Chronicle, Howe was asked what it was like to work with Bean. He said, it was a job. It was a work of labor. He was a little difficult to work with. We got the job done. I had a great staff and our minor league system did a good job of preparing players for us. And our scouting department, before the so-called money ball, did a great job of bringing good young players into the system. When asked about the changes Bean and Paul DePodesta brought to the team, Howe said in the same interview, it was different. It was certainly a different thing to a degree, but everybody in baseball knows that on-base percentage is important. He really zeroed in on that, and everybody bought into it that there was something really different that they were doing. Howe says that it is disappointing that none of the players, who we mentioned before, received credit for getting the A's to the postseason. He said, I'm real proud of what I helped achieve there. It certainly wasn't a one-man deal or a two-man deal. It was the whole organization. Which sounds from Howe like we were talking about. Sabermetrics was being used as a tool in the mix with everything else. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, when asked if he felt the book Moneyball affected him in baseball circles, he said, it certainly doesn't help it the way I was portrayed. I think the book hurt me and now the movie. I want people who don't know Art Howe, that's the problem with the movie. I've spent my whole career trying to build a good Mm -hmm. reputation and be a good baseball man and someone who people like to play for and all of the above. Then in two hours, people who don't know me And Brad Pitt's a big name. People are going to see his movies. Mm -hmm. And all these people across the country are going to go in and get this perception of me that's totally unfair and untruthful. So I'm very upset. At the time of uh, of Philip Seymour Hoffman's death, who played Howe in the film, Mm -hmm. Howe said that he never blamed Hoffman for the portrayal of him. He felt that Hoffman was just doing what was on the page as an actor. Man, and what it's just quick kudos to Philip Seymour Hoffman once again. Oh, yes. Like, How many films has he been in? He's just played spectacular. He's unrecognizable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No, he is. He's one of those few actors. I mean, this is said in various ways. Most people, you look at me, you say, oh, it's that person in this. And he just embodies whoever he is portraying, fictional or not. And... You just don't even think about it being Philip Seymour Hoffman no. on the screen. Howe says no one from the film production contacted him regarding his portrayal. Mm. He thinks Billy Bean is the one responsible <laughs> for having him portrayed the way he was. Oh, shit. When Bean was asked about that, he said, I was wondering who was going to be the first guy to think I produced, wrote, or directed this movie. Now I have my answer. Howe's comments are completely misguided. Sounds like a nice public row. Yeah. Now, it should be noted, and I think this is going to be interesting since we talk about truth in film, is that when Moneyball started development, 
Steven Soderbergh was attached to direct. Oh, he's always good. All roads lead to Soderbergh. Yeah. This <laughs> podcast. Which goes back to you talking about McConaughey, because doesn't he love McConaughey? Oh, yeah. But Soderbergh is great at taking these complex topics and making an entertaining film. We talked about The Informant, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was brilliantly done all throughout. And there, uh, what's, is it The Laundromat that's on Netflix with Meryl Streep? Yeah, or Laundry. The laundry, something like that, yeah. but it's all about money laundering and how that's done. Also very complex, but very entertaining movie. So I would have loved to see Soderbergh do this. And Soderbergh was set to direct from a script by Steven Zalian. Steven Zalian is one of the most influential screenwriters working in Hollywood. His first screenplay was Falcon and the Snowman. Oh my God, that's such a good movie. We should do that for this we podcast. Should, we should for the season. Yeah. And he's gone on to write other films like Schindler's List, A Clear and Present Danger, which is one of my favorite. Harrison Ford? Yes. Is it Tom O'Clancy? Tom, Tom Clancy. Tom yeah. Clancy. Tom one of my favorite Harrison Ford yeah. movies. I love that film. Awakenings. Mm. The Girl Wait, with, with Robin Williams? Yes, and yeah. De Niro. Yeah. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And Searching for Bobby Fischer. A week before production was supposed to start, Soderbergh turned in a revised draft of Zalian's script. Soderbergh was interested in doing a movie that was absolutely true. And it was going to be done in a pseudo-documentary style. Art Howe and other members of the A's organization were going to play themselves. Ooh. Wow. Dimitri Martin was going to play the Peter Brand character. No. I can't see it. No. No. I mean, I think Soderbergh could have brought it out of him in some ways because Soderbergh's good, but no. No. Jonah Hill. Because that guy's another one. He's another Philip Seymour Hoffman. He embodies. Yeah. He embodies. David Justice and Scott Hattisburg, who were played in the version of the movie we saw by Stephen Bishop and Chris Pratt, respectively, were going to portray themselves while some ballplayers would appear in interview segments, such as Daryl Strawberry, Mookie Wilson, Lenny Dykstra, players who played with Billy Bean, who could talk about that aspect of him as a player. That would have been so cool. Mookie Wilson, man. So he was going to take people who haven't done acting before and use them to play themselves in the film, which if you remember, he did this before. He did a movie called Bubble in 2005 where he used non-professional actors in the roles. And that was an interesting film as well. So the question is, how true was Soderbergh going to be? There was a scene in Zalian's original script of the scouts observing a player while he was coaching his daughter's t-ball game. Mm -hmm. And the daughter makes a good play, and one scout says to the other, maybe we should sign her. (laughs) It's a great line. It's a humorous line. It's an invention of the screenwriter, and Soderbergh took it out. That's how true he wanted it to be. Something so minor as that, mm-hmm. if it wasn't true to what really happened, it wasn't going in the movie. And that's what his version was. And I found this interesting that Soderbergh felt he was standing on the shoulders of director Ron Shelton. Mm. Ron Shelton directed Bull Durham, which in my mind isn't just a brilliant baseball film. It's a brilliant film, period. Oh, absolutely. And I think Kevin Costner's performance in that film has not gotten the credit it deserves because I have a belief that Crash is drunk through most of the film. Oh, yeah, but does does Kevin Costner not get kudos for that film? 
I think people like it, but oh. I don't. I, I think he was brilliant in the movie. I thought Tim Robbins played yeah. mm-hmm. the most amazing dolt and had the greatest arc oh, yeah. of any character who I've seen. And it's, and it's Susan Sarandon, right? And Susan Sarandon. Yeah. Oh, brilliant, brilliant film. But Soderbergh felt that Bull Durham was the model for telling the baseball story because oh, yeah. the characters were so lifelike. And he wanted to make something even more immersive. I just wonder what we would have got with Soderbergh at the helm of the film and with mm-hmm. the approach he wanted to take. So Soderbergh wanted to uh, have Bill James in the movie as an animated figure who was kind of a wizened old narrator of the whole thing was going to be his approach in one version of the script. Was Soderbergh hanging out with McConaughey at this time? Like in his backyard <laughs> with those fires? Remember he's playing bongos? Right, play getting the- stoned and playing bongos. <laughs> Disturbing the neighborhood. So here's where we get to what keeps films from being as factual as we might like them to be, is that Soderbergh turned this draft into Sony. And Amy Pascal was the head of Sony at the time. Mm. And when she read what he had, there was no drama that took place. <laughs> oh, no. There, there was, oh, my God. Nothing happens. There was no right? conflict. There wasn't a story to tell yeah. necessarily. Yeah. And the fear was that Sony had already sunk $10 million into the pre-production of a film that they budgeted for $60 million. And that with this, they were going to end up with a $60 million art house film. The other piece is financial. Baseball movies do not do better overseas than they do in the U.S. So it's not like the Marvel Cinematic Universe where if the movie doesn't do well, you're going to recoup that in China or Europe or somewhere else. You're going to make less money than you made in the U.S. So there were some real concerns that if they didn't have a story that engaged people had some drama that they weren't going to make their money back on this fucking american audiences they're so fucking lazy because that would have been an amazing movie so Although who knows you know hollywood filters out all kinds of stuff and yeah there's something about american movie going audiences and their expectations for what a movie is supposed to be is frustrating mm-hmm. like if it doesn't have like this like it doesn't have these these elements it becomes an art house flick it's yeah. like why is that a fucking art house flick yeah because that is a story film that he is, was telling yeah it fil- just wasn't film and art it's supposed to reflect life back to us like sometimes there's nothing happens or sometimes it's not as dramatic as it seems well that doesn't make money because it seems interesting that money is a theme running throughout everything as we talk about Moneyball. Because mm-hmm. we talked about stadiums in the beginning. We talked about player salaries. Now we're talking about what is needed to change a film in order to recoup your investment in it. Do we change the American movie-going audience? So, so here's what happened. Five days before the cameras were supposed to roll, Sony said, we're going to cut our losses on this. They released the film back to Pitt and Soderbergh. They said you can shop it around wherever you like. And what Pitt and Soderbergh found was that no other studio wanted to make that film. And Pitt was a producer on it. So he really wanted to get the film made. Why was he, he, do you know why he was so invested in the story? It came out of his production company. But, but for him, he says he really likes underdog stories. Okay. And that's how he viewed Moneyball, mm. which is an underdog story. 
Soderbergh left the project to go on and do other things. And that's when they brought Aaron Sorkin in to help write the thing, uh, along with Steven Zalian. They brought in director Bennett Miller, who directed Capote. And what he would do is he would have Zalian and Sorkin work on scenes separately for the rewrites, send the pages to him, and then he would combine them into a final draft of the script, which is a process that does not usually turn out a good movie. But in this instance, it wound up turning out a really good movie. Yeah, it's a great it's a great film. I was going to say the Sorkin thing. He's, he's I've been such a fan for so long. Mm-hmm. Watching that guy interviewed though, I dude, I intensely dislike that man or his persona. Whatever he's putting on, that dude is too cool for school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And lastly, as we're talking about doing no harm, we need to talk about Jeremy Brown. Jeremy Brown is brought into the movie towards the end. He's a five foot, six inch, 226 pound catcher who's featured in grainy footage that Peter Brand shows to Billy Bean. And Peter Brand in the movie refers to what he's showing as a metaphor. The reality was that Brown was more than a metaphor. The footage shown in the movie was recreated from a real event that happened when Brown was playing in the minor leagues. He slipped and fell at first base and was informed he had actually hit a home run, and then got up and ran the bases. Bean and De Podesta took Brown as a first-round, 35th-position draft pick against the strong objections of the scouting department, because they were solely looking at Brown's numbers. Brown became a focus in the book Moneyball, and then had that mentioned in the film that I just said, Brown spent four years on the minor league teams before making his major league debut in September 3rd of 2006. He played his last game in the major leagues on October 1st of 2006 with a record of three hits for 10 at-bats, including two doubles and a 364 on-base percentage. Those who know Brown have said that he is a shy, quiet guy who was a great player He was just a big guy, but his numbers were great, which is why Bean and DePodesta brought him on. Uh, After 2006 season, he called Billy Bean and said, due to personal reasons, I won't be attending spring training. He was put down to a minor league team, not used there. And then in 2008, he announced his retirement from baseball at Mm. the age of 28. Those who know Brown have said that he was a shy, quiet guy. They say he was selected because of his skill, but he quickly became everything that was wrong about sabermetrics to the traditionalists. So he became uh, he became the scapegoat in essence. Like he was the image of the the overweight player who this this is what your algorithm gets you. He is the vision of what a scout wouldn't select. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But he's also the vision of what sabermetrics numbers tell you is a good player. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like he was a good player. Uh, the last that's known of him is he told some friends that there was no joy in baseball for him anymore. And he moved down to Alabama to just become a regular guy. Bean said at the time... Good ta- for him. Bean said at the time that the organization would consider Brown on sabbatical and that the door is open if he ever wanted to return. And with that, it's time to grade the movie Moneyball and find out if it is a biopic that mostly sucks. On a letter grade of A through F, Don, what do you give Moneyball? 
C. A C. And John? Likewise, C. I'll go C as well. All right. Any final thoughts on Moneyball? I would say I, I think based on the stories that you have shared about Billy Bean, I think they showed his nature and his heart really yeah. well in the movie. And I think that matters because someone who says we're going to consider him on sabbatical and leave the door open for him is acknowledging the dignity of another human being. And I think those kind of things are important. If that's a true story, then it, it leads me to suspect that the other actions he took to acknowledge the dignity of these other players he was bringing back who might otherwise have just felt like they were just accepting whatever they could accept so that they don't lose their house and have to move their kids again, mm-hmm. you know, which could feel really dispiriting. I, I just dig that. I just, I like that that came through and I'm hoping that that was accurate. Oh, it is. It comes yeah. from a quote in an article from yeah. him. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, just in general in the movie. Mm. Um, I am I am presuming a certain amount that that is consistent with his character because of the actual quote about that one player, Brown, since those sorts of behaviors seem to come through from him in the movie, that people's dignity and their worth was important to be recognized. Got it. Okay. John, any final thoughts on Moneyball? I think that's the notion of dignity and worth is an interesting contrast to a mathematical approach mm-hmm. to a sport because in a sport, your dignity and your worth is tied to your ability. It's not necessarily tied to a schema or an organizational mathematical representation of this grid of what you're capable of. I don't know. I just have such mixed feelings about like the movie. I love what it's so entertaining. I could watch it a hundred, like I said, a hundred times in a row but there's still something that like sticks it just rubs me the wrong way it seems like these are two worlds that are disparate that are colliding you have the world of research and data and then you have this world of heart and spirit and, and tradition and, and tradition and, but it's also it's so in, it's so instinctual versus the rational right mm-hmm. and that's like there's just it's an interesting battle i think that it's an interesting notion that plays out in the movie, but in real life, it's it's. Fa- I, I didn't know that it, it was so widely used now. Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing. I think the movie hypes up the battle between the two factions. Yeah, yeah. Because if you show the two factions working together, you don't have much of a right. drama going on. Right. Yeah, so I, I would knock the film a little bit on that. Yeah. But yeah, I give it a C as well. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Don. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. We always try to get things right, especially since we hold filmmakers to the same standard, but sometimes we make mistakes. Other times, I just did not anticipate the questions my guests would ask during the discussion. For instance, Don asked why Sabermetrics is called Sabermetrics. Saber is an acronym created by Bill James when he was self-publishing the season's worth of statistics. He published out of the Society of American Baseball Research, S-A-B-R. But Sabermetrics is spelled as one word, and an additional E is added between the B and the R in Saber. Don also asked if Grady Fusion, the head scout for the Oakland A's, who was fired in the movie for not getting on board with Sabermetrics, took the use of the data to the Texas Rangers after he left the Oakland A's. 
Gravy seems to view sabermetrics as a tool that can be used with scouting to get the best results. In an article in Seattle Pie, when he was working with the San Diego Padres, he said, quote, We used numbers to verify what we saw, or what we saw to verify the numbers. We tried to use every piece of information available. We never went solely off numbers. Never, ever. But there are certain numbers that justify the things you see as a scout. He went on to say, Today, there's so much stuff out there to help you cut down your risk in your evaluation. That's what scouting is. You want to be right more than you're wrong. It's all about measuring your risk. And he continued, quote, You've got people coming up with scientific formulas, and that alone isn't going to work. Scouts aren't going anywhere. You're always going to need the naked eye to evaluate a player. You have to have that. You have to have that balance. That wraps up another episode of Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources that we use to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash moneyball. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. For Moneyball, I have a half-hour feature from the Oakland A's organization, which is all about the 20-game winning streak that convinced other teams of the value of sabermetrics. And there's also a video of Paul DePodesta talking about the use of data with scouting. I want to thank John and Don for talking about Moneyball. You can find John Helix on Facebook at John Helix Official. You can find his music in most places where you go to get your music. And for Dawn, I am sure she would like you to get involved with social justice issues and do some good in this world. How are we doing with this project? Go like us at Facebook and Twitter at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And if you do, we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone.